technology by itself is not going to solve the complexities of the legal system. You need to step back and look at the process that you're trying to automate first and see how you might simplify it and make it more user-friendly before you apply technology to it. Today on Law Next, Jim Sandman, president of the Legal Services Corporation and one of the leading voices in the United States on behalf of increasing access to justice for everyone who has a legal problem. This is Bob Ambrogi, and you're listening to Law Next, the podcast that features the innovators and entrepreneurs who are driving what's next in law. We'll get to today's interview in just a moment. But first, let's hear from the sponsors who generously support Law Next. ShareFile is a secure, easy-to-use collaboration and workflow solution that has helped more than 90,000 customers secure data, share files, and collaborate on documents. With ShareFile for Legal, you can eliminate the never-ending speed bumps during client collaboration, giving your clients one tool to onboard, sign retainers, and share requested documents. It can also be easily integrated with popular workplace tools like Google Workspace, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Zapier, and more bringing even more ease to the client experience. To learn more about how ShareFile for Legal can help you keep work flowing, go to sharefile.com. And now, on to this week's interview. Jim Samman, welcome to Law Next. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. It's a real uh, honor to have you on here. Where am I reaching you today? Are you in, in D.C.? I'm at my desk in my office in D.C., yes. I saw recently that you are pursuing some sort of a 50-state bucket list tour. Is that right? Yes. Uh, one of my bucket list items is to visit all 50 of the state capitol buildings. And last Friday, I hit number 25. So I'm halfway there. That's pretty cool. What 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 brought that about? Uh, how I came up with the bucket list? Yeah. Well, I grew up in Albany, New York, which is a state capitol. So from a, an early age, I had an appreciation for capital buildings. I've been to all 50 states, so I needed to come up with something new. And I decided uh, state capital buildings. Also, I have a high school friend who has the same bucket list item, but she's up to 39. So there's something of a competition between us. Okay. All right. Uh so, Jim, I want to uh, you know talk about uh, your work with the Legal Services Corporation, but I wonder if I could just kind of step back and ask you a little bit about uh, your your prior career. You were you were uh, practice law at Arnold and Porter for thirty years. You were the managing partner there for a decade. Uh, what, what was your practice? I was a corporate litigator. I did a variety of work. I did antitrust cases. I was an employment lawyer. I did general commercial litigation. I did product liability work, quite a range of things over the course of my career. So how did you get from being a big firm lawyer at Arnold and Porter to being president of a legal services corporation? Well, as you mentioned, I served as the firm's managing partner for 10 years. Uh, that was a job I loved for a long time. It was very interesting. No two days were ever alike. I got to learn about everything from accounting and finance, to information technology, to commercial real estate, to strategic planning, recruiting, every personnel issue imaginable. Uh, my firm at the time employed 1,600 people. That's a small village. But eventually I became disillusioned with the direction that the big firm segment of the legal profession has gone in and with the inability of any single firm to resist the competitive pressures 
that uh, the big firm segment tends to drive uh, firms in. It came to feel to me as if it were all and only about money. If you're a managing partner of a big law firm, you have to be able to pay your associates what they call the going rate and your partners uh, the going rate today in a big law firm in a big city. That means that the starting salary for a brand new lawyer right out of law school is $190,000 a year. I felt as if I were devoting my life to making rich people richer, not the clients, but my colleagues. And that's not why well, I went to written law. written critically about associate salaries in the past. Yes, that, that wasn't why I went to law school. So I decided to make a change and take up a new career in public service. My first stop was to be general counsel of the D.C. public schools, which, as you might imagine, was wildly different from working in a big law firm. And then uh, in 2011, I heard about the opening at the Legal Services Corporation. I thought this would be a wonderful combination of a mission I'm passionate about and a job that would make good use of my prior management experience. I wondered that. I mean, were you already passionate about that mission when you came to the Legal Services Corporation? I, I kind of wondered what, what your exposure had been to the legal services world or, or to the issues around access to justice before you got to LSC. I did pro bono work throughout my career in private practice. Arnold and Porter has uh, what I regard as uh, uh, one of the finest, if not the finest, uh, pro bono practices in the world. Arnold and Porter did Gideon versus Wainwright pro bono, uh, the case that established the right to counsel in criminal cases in state courts in the United States. And I, I did a variety of different kinds of pro bono from the day I joined the firm until the day I left, including the 10 years that I served as managing partner. I had also been on the board of the Neighborhood Legal Services Program in D.C., which is a grantee of the Legal Services Corporation. I had uh, been involved in the legal services uh, community in D.C. through my work as president of the District of Columbia Bar. So I certainly had an appreciation for the, uh, the need uh, for help and the importance of the issue. I didn't understand the magnitude of the problem until I got to LSC. Uh, what I learned when I, when I got here uh, disclosed a problem far beyond what I had understood in my prior experience as a lawyer. And is it fair to say far beyond the ability of the LSC alone to address? Yes. Uh, the Legal Services Corporation alone cannot possibly solve the, solve the access to justice problem in the United States. It's a critically important component of it. I, uh, I think the Legal Services Corporation is the backbone of civil legal aid in the United States, but it's a far bigger problem than we have or ever will have the capacity to address. So let's let's talk more about all that. But but let, uh, on the subject of the Legal Services Corporation, just for a moment, what what is the mission and, and purpose of of the Legal Services Corporation? The Legal Services Corporation is the country's largest funder of civil legal aid programs for low income people. We fund 132 independent legal aid programs with more than 850 offices that serve every county and every state and the territories. Uh, no matter where you are in the United States, there's an LSC-funded legal aid program providing help to low-income people. We're a funding organization, not a direct services provider. We were created by an act of Congress in 1974. We get virtually all of our money from an annual congressional appropriation, currently $415 million. Uh, our board is appointed by the President of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. 
our legal status, interestingly, is as an independent nonprofit corporation. We are not a government agency, but we have many connections to the government through the appointment of our board, our creation by statute, and our annual congressional appropriation. And besides being connected to the government, the government has placed restrictions on the kinds of matters you can be involved in. Isn't that right? As a part of the appropriations po uh, process and in the statute that created LSC, as it's uh, been amended over time, uh, yes, there are restrictions on the work that can be done by the organizations that we fund. Uh, they cannot represent, uh, subject to certain exceptions, undocumented people. Uh, they can't do class actions. Uh, they can't do redistricting work. There are categories of cases that are off limits for legal aid programs funded by the Legal Services Corporation. In, 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 how are we doing on funding for legal services? I mean, in, in, it has the current has, has the current political climate been <laughs> been good or bad for funding for the Legal Services Corporation? I, I think it's been good, actually. Uh, in each of the last three years, the Office of Management and Budget has proposed that our funding be completely eliminated. In each of those years, Congress has increased our funding. And I think that Congress's action reflects broad bipartisan support, nonpartisan support for the mission of the Legal Services Corporation, recognition that providing access to justice for low-income people is a fundamental American value that as, as American as, as uh, the flag and apple pie. Uh, so I think the, uh, the response we've gotten from Congress is important affirmation of the importance of our mission. Uh, having said that, our funding isn't nearly enough to address the problem. Uh, $415 million is less than what Americans spend every year on Halloween costumes for their pets. Uh, I, I think that says something uh, not positive about our national priorities. I think our nation can afford more and, and needs to devote more resources to improving access to justice for low-income people. So you, you said before that when you came to the Legal Services Corporation, you were, one thing that surprised you was the magnitude of the problem. Uh, put that in perspective. What, what is the magnitude of the access to justice issue in this country? I can give you several measures of it. Uh, here at LSC, we, we try to measure what we call the justice gap. The justice gap is the term we use to describe the difference between the civil legal needs of low-income people and the resources available to meet those needs. We did a national survey two years ago in 2017 to try to measure the justice gap. We did it with the National Opinion Research Center, NORC, at the University of Chicago. They conducted a survey of uh, 2,000 people who were financially eligible for legal aid at LSC-funded programs. And it showed that in the prior year, 86% of the civil legal needs of that population either received no legal help at all or inadequate legal help. The numbers that are most troubling to me and the ones I really was unaware of in my prior work as a lawyer are the numbers that reflect the percentages of unrepresented litigants in courts across the United States. The National Center for State Courts estimates that in 75% of civil cases in state courts, 
one or both parties does not have a lawyer. And that figure, 75%, doesn't count family law cases where huge numbers of people are unrepresented. The numbers are even higher in certain categories of high-stakes, high-volume cases like evictions. It's common in the United States today for more than 90% of tenants not to have lawyers, even though more than 90% of landlords do have a lawyer. It's common for the majority of victims of domestic violence seeking protection orders not to have a lawyer. They have to go it alone. And it's uh, common in child custody and child support cases for the majority of parents not to have a lawyer. There was a study here here in Boston, up in my up my way by the Boston Bar a few years ago on, on the well, it looked at several issues, but the, on the domestic violence issue alone, it showed that something like half of the women who are who seek legal help in domestic violence matters are not able to obtain it. And imagine that it, it it takes courage for a victim of domestic violence to decide to seek protection. That that very decision could put the victim at further risk. What if the abuser finds out before they can get a protection order? And so put yourself in the position of the abused person. You screw up your courage to go to a local legal aid organization to see if you can get some help and you get turned away because they're full up. They, they can't help all of the people who, who need their assistance. And then you face a decision. Either you go back home and you face it and you have to deal with this horrible situation or you go into court by yourself. The person who, who has no law degree, no training in the law, who tries to navigate our legal system today, faces a system that was created by lawyers for lawyers, built on the assumption that everybody's got a lawyer. Everything about the system, from the language of the law, to the forms that are used, to the rules of civil procedure, to the rules of evidence, everyone was created with a lawyer in mind. It's a system that works pretty well if you have a lawyer and horribly if you don't. It is complicated, complex, opaque. If, if you put yourself in the position who doesn't have a, a, a college degree or a high school diploma uh, trying to figure that out, that's not what justice looks like. Uh, and particularly if the opposing party is represented as uh, the majority of, of eviction uh, uh, defendants face when a, when a landlord has lawyer, that's just unfair. That's not a level playing field. It's not justice. Right. If the part of the issue here is that, as you say, we have a system designed by lawyers for lawyers that assumes there will be lawyers in, in every matter, uh, is the answer to make more lawyers available or does the answer lie somewhere else? Both, actually. I'd start with the proposition that we need to simplify the legal system and eliminate some of this uh, complexity. There will never be enough money to provide enough lawyers for uh, every low-income person who can't afford a lawyer in any civil case. And there will never be enough pro bono hours to, to fill the gap either. One observer uh, put it this way. He said, uh, lawyers have been paid and paid well to, to proliferate subtleties and complexities. It's about time we brought our intellectual resources to bear on eliminating some of those complexities. That was Attorney General Robert Kennedy in 1964, 55 years ago. Uh, I don't think the situation has gotten any better since then. I think it's gotten worse. I think we need to take a lesson from small claims courts, which were designed for people without lawyers. Uh, many small claims courts across the United States don't permit you to have a lawyer. 
And I think if we could expand that concept, simplicity, uh, to other kinds of cases, particularly these high volume, high stakes cases that I referred to, where we know from, uh, from years of experience now that uh, huge numbers of people will, would not have a lawyer, I think you could see a different system. This is achievable. There is no reason why the system has to be as complicated as it is. There will always be uh, some matters that are complex by their nature, where you will need a lawyer and where it isn't realistic to think that merely through simplification, you can get things to the point where the person without a legal background will be able to succeed. So that's why I say we need both. And you mentioned small claims courts. A number of small claims courts uh, in recent years have are at least experimenting with or, or doing pilots with uh, online dispute resolution as a way to uh, make themselves more accessible and available to the people who come into their, those courts. Exactly. And, and that's the kind of new thinking and creativity we need. Uh, online dispute resolution is something that uh, that can work uh, often on a 24-7 basis based on the, the availability of the participants in the process. You can have asynchronous participation. All of the parties don't need to, uh, to be uh, participating simultaneously. Uh, that, that's the kind of thing that just uh, recognizes the realities of life for people who have to navigate the legal system and is, uh, is much more user-friendly and user-centered than our traditional legal system. We'll get back to my interview in just a moment, but first, let's take a break to hear from the sponsors who generously support Law Next. And now, let's continue this week's interview. Something that I, I know that you and I have in common is, is an interest in, in how technology can be used to uh, address the issue of access to justice. And uh, in 2011, the Legal Services Corporation uh, convened a, a summit uh, of, of uh, leading thinkers to look at that issue. Uh, I, I don't know if that was something that you convened after you came aboard uh, or whether that was already in the works? Uh, yeah, that was something that, that uh, we did after I got here. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so in 2013, they, they produced a report uh, report of the, of the summit on the use of technology to expand access to justice, which I, I actually just, just reread in anticipation of this interview. And I'm amazed at, at 2013. Feels like a long time ago right now, but it's the report is extremely timely still and relevant. What was the purpose in your mind of, of convening that summit? And, and can you sum up for us what, what the conclusions were, what the rec recommendations were that they came up with? The reason behind the summit was um, our recognition that it was time to take stock. Uh, LSE had convened an earlier uh, summit around 1999, which led to many positive developments using technology, among them the creation of statewide websites in every state and territory providing basic information about the most common legal issues affecting low-income people. We thought it was time uh, to see where we were and what might be done to better deploy technology to improve access to justice. And we set as a goal before uh, the summit convened a, uh, a purpose. And the purpose of the summit was, uh, I'm quoting, to explore the potential of technology to move the United States toward providing some form of effective assistance to 100% of persons 
otherwise unable to afford an attorney for dealing with essential civil legal needs. The language was chosen very carefully. Some form of effective assistance to 100%. Some form of effective assistance does not necessarily mean a lawyer for everybody. Uh, what we were aiming at was a spectrum of options, everything from access to a user-friendly, helpful website, to instructional videos, to checklists, to unbundled legal services, pro bono assistance, to uh, full representation through a legal aid lawyer. And the emphasis on 100% was to try to get away from this notion that resources only permit the service of a uh, a, a relatively small percentage of all those people who have legal needs. We wanted to shake up the status quo and get to a point where no one gets turned away with no help. Everybody gets something and something effective. And uh, we wanted to see to what extent we uh, technology might help achieve that goal. I mean, you, you came up with a number of recommendations on, on ways to achieve that, uh, uh, statewide legal portals, uh, various other recommendations. What's happened since then uh, in terms of implementing the recommendations of, of that report? A lot has, has happened. Uh, the implementation has to be done by others. And it's fairly diffuse, but I think there are a number of indications that the recommendations are being implemented. Take uh, statewide legal portals. A number of states are developing triage portals that take a legal problem that a, that a person has presented and try to direct them toward the, the most appropriate uh, level of service that uh, is necessary and feasible under their circumstances. And LSE itself has been working on pilot portals in both Alaska and Hawaii to try to implement that concept. Uh, there's more being done in document assembly. That was another recommendation of the summit. Apps that work like TurboTax, uh, where a person completes an online plain language interview and the app then uses the responses to the interview questions to complete a court-approved form that the user can then print out and file or e-file if they have that capacity and the, and the court uh, does that. Uh, more mobile technology. We have focused and encourage others to focus on designing first for mobile, not designing for a desktop or a, or a laptop initially and then uh, converting to use by mobile, but uh, designing from the get-go with the assumption that the majority of users are going to be doing their access to the internet uh, through a mobile device and making sure that that functions optimally. Uh, we also recommended business process analysis, uh, taking the steps in a legal process and breaking it down, making sure it's being done most efficiently. This is related to the simplification point that I made earlier. You know the saying, if you automate a bad process, you end up with an automated bad process. Uh, technology by itself is not going to solve the complexities of the legal system. You need to step back and look at the process that you're trying to automate first and see how you might simplify it and make it more user-friendly before you apply technology to it. And there are a number of places across the United States where that's being done. Yeah. And, and on the uh, statewide portals, and you mentioned the pilot uh, programs in Alaska and Hawaii, Last time I knew, uh, uh, you were working on that in conjunction with, with Microsoft and with Pro Bono Net as well. Is, is that still the case? And, and what's the status of those pilots? 
Microsoft uh, was heavily involved and invested substantially for three years and turned it over to us at the beginning of this year, 2019. We're still working with Pro Bono Net. We're working with the, um, the lab at uh, Suffolk Law School uh, currently. There are a number of participants, and we expect the pilots to get underway in Alaska and Hawaii early in 2020. That report, uh, your, your report on the use of technology to expand access to justice, opened with a quote I, I think that I, I use every time I give a presentation uh, because it just hits home for me so much, which was the, the quote is, technology can and must play a vital role in transforming service delivery so that all poor people in the United States with an essential legal need obtain some form of effective assistance. Is it fair to say, based on this, that quote, that you feel that technology uh, has to be part of the solution to this? I, I realize not all of it, but the technology is an essential part of the solution to addressing access to justice. Absolutely it is, but it's not the entire solution. <laughs> Tech Technology alone is never going to solve the problem. To me, the, the, um, the most important role that technology plays is in getting information to people uh, that used to be inaccessible to them. Historically, lawyers had a monopoly on access to legal information. You couldn't find the information on your own. It, it was uh, too, too hard to come by. But technology offers the opportunity to get critical information into the hands of people who need it in terms that they can comprehend. That's an enormous change and opportunity. So technology is not the entire solution. It's only part of the solution. Uh, you've talked about money. You've, you've talked about needing to simplify court systems, uh, legal processes in different ways, needing to maybe have a broader view of, of what it means to provide legal help uh, to individuals. What else? What, what are the other components that you see or, or, the, or the steps that need to be taken in order to achieve that goal of 100% uh, effective assistance? Change the regulatory system. In particular, change the rules on the unauthorized practice of law. Uh, in the purported interest of protecting consumers from unscrupulous people without law degrees and membership in the bar, we've consigned those who can't afford a lawyer to no help of any kind. Great. What kind of consumer protection is that? If you can't afford a lawyer, you get nothing. Uh, we need to be moving assist to a system like the one that has been successfully in place in the healthcare system for some years now, where there's been a differentiation of tasks. There are some things that only doctors can and should do. They're, they're practicing at the top of their licenses. But then you have physician's assistants, you have medical technicians, you have licensed practical nurses, registered nurses, all of whom have an important role to play in the delivery of, of health care. If you showed up for a physical and your doctor uh, drew your blood, you'd say, what's wrong here? <laughs> don't you have something better to do? Uh, why is it that we don't permit experienced paralegals uh, who know say, uh, eviction cases, landlord-tenant courts inside and out. Why don't we permit them to do more? This isn't rocket science. Look at the irrationality of this system. We assume that simply because you have a law degree and membership of the bar, you can go to court as, say, a pro bono lawyer to represent a, a tenant in an eviction case, even though you've never handled an eviction case before. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, now, 
Good Legal Aid Program, working with a pro bono lawyer, will train that lawyer and provide mentoring to make sure that he or she can function competently on, be, on behalf of a client. But the system permits anyone who has a law degree without any experience in, this, in the substantive area of law uh, to go into court and, and do it for the first time. Studies in Europe show that what matters is experience, not the credential that the person has, but we have glorified the credential of a JD and membership in the bar over practical experience. Uh, I think there is a lot that could be done by competent, well-educated, well-trained, regulated professionals who don't have a JD or membership in the bar. Yeah. What about, I mean, as, as of course, uh, you're well aware that there are initiatives uh, in, in a couple of states to loosen the restrictions on unauthorized practice and also to loosen uh, the uh, limitations on outside ownership or investment in law practices. Uh, do you also support those initiatives? Do you think, do you think that allowing outside non-lawyer investment in, in uh, providing legal services would help address access to justice issues? I do. Take investment in technology, for example. I, I think that there is undercapitalization of technology in law-related applications uh, today. Law has been less affected by technology than almost any other profession or business that I can think of. In fact, I can't think of any. The practice of law to, to me today looks very 20th century. Uh, for all the talk about how it's different, it's not so different. And I think one of the reasons it's not different is because the, the funding hasn't been available to provide the capital necessary for major technological change. And one of the reasons the capital isn't available is because investors are terrified of uh, potential charges of the unauthorized practice of law and because of the limitations on investment by non-lawyers in legal enterprises. I think the burden should be on those who oppose uh, non-lawyer investment in legal enterprises to show exactly what the harm is going to be. I, people talk about a parade of horribles, but what is the evidence that shows that that's actually going to be harmful to consumers? What I know is that the system that we have today is not serving millions and millions of consumers every year. I see harm. Uh, I think we need to be open-minded to uh, solutions that might make that situation better. It certainly strikes me as somebody who follows uh, developments in legal technology that uh, too much of the money uh, that's going into research and development is, is focusing on products uh, that cater to large law firms and corporate legal clients uh, and, and not to those that might address serving the needs of, of, of low income or, or others who don't have access to legal services. I know the Legal Services Corporation uh, has its TIG grants, its technology initiative grants, uh, which I think, what, $5 million a year or something like that? Is that, is that about the right amount? $4 million a year. Uh, and uh, and you now have uh, your, your conference uh, coming up, your annual conference coming up January 15th in Portland, Oregon. We can put a plug in for that, the Innovations and in Technology Conference. Um, but but I, I guess my question is, do you think that an, enough resources are going to or, or enough uh, thought is going into how better to serve these underserved populations or, or are we spending too much time thinking about the, the people who don't need us thinking about them too much? 
Well, I don't draw that dichotomy. I, I think that um, a lot of what I see in technology aimed at big law firms could also be used by legal services organizations. I see a lot of similarities between what I know of the corporate practice of law and the practice of law in a legal aid organization. For example, a big corporate legal department serves sometimes hundreds of thousands of employees on matters like contracting and procurement for the business. They can't possibly provide individualized legal assistance to every manager who needs to needs a contract. They have to automate things. They have to routinize them. They have to make their work product readily accessible to their clients, their users, without the intervention of a, of a lawyer. Well, that's not unlike what, what legal aid programs face. They have huge numbers of clients. They uh, face efficiency challenges. They can't be providing, uh, uh, they don't have the resources to provide customized assistance to every individual person. Uh, they need to to deal with uh, with issues at scale. Uh, there are lessons that could be shared by corporate legal departments that I think would be directly relevant to the work of legal aid organizations. So, I, I think that one possibility is uh, in kind contributions of technology and know how by the corporate legal community with the legal aid community to uh, to improve efficiency and to narrow the justice gap. Have you seen that happen? Are you seeing those kinds of uh, cross-fertilization, if you want to call it that? I have. It's often ad hoc, uh, but there are examples of corporations, for example, deploying their uh, their business process analysis expertise uh, to the benefit of legal aid organizations to improve their intake, to make it more efficient so that they can uh, get to client service more more quickly. I know that the uh, the housing practice of uh, of Legal Aid Chicago benefited from uh, pro bono business process uh, analysis. Yes, I have, and there have been. Look, look at what Microsoft uh, did with us on the on the portal project. Uh, there are examples, but it hasn't been uh, done across the country in an organized way yet. Yeah. What What about larger law firms? I mean, you having been a managing partner of a large law firm for 10 years, are, are law firms doing all they can be doing or, or what should they be doing that they're not to help uh, address the issue of access to justice in this country? They do a lot in pro bono. Uh, big, big law firms have strong pro bono programs that are a very important adjunct to the limited resources of, of legal aid programs. Uh, but big law firms are concentrated in big cities, and there is huge need in uh, rural America that cannot be met by the pro bono resources of big law firms located in big cities. Uh, some of them do make in-kind contributions of expertise and technology. Uh, DLA Piper, uh, for example, is a leader in this. DLA Piper convened a global forum in London earlier this year. Uh, specifically devoted to the use of technology to improve access to justice. Kudos to them. I, I think that uh, that they set an example for other law firms and are pointing out how, uh, in addition to pro bono, there are very practical ways that law firms can uh, can help the cause. And uh, my understanding is that they're going to be having another global convening in Silicon Valley in the fall of 2020. It seems to me that one of the obstacles um, 
that underlies much of what you you've talked about here is 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 just kind of a a mindset in in the legal profession uh, and as i say you've alluded to this already but this, the, the idea that uh, there are a lot of lawyers who think uh, a that only lawyers can uh, provide effective legal assistance uh and and b that are uh, resistant to what you might call competition coming in from other other sources uh within this area how do you see us overcoming that? How do you see us getting lawyers to think more openly, more liberally about what it means to provide justice and how that can be done? We have to educate them more about the realities of how the justice system is failing millions of people every year. I always remember what I didn't know before I came to work at the Legal Services Corporation. I was not living under a rock. I worked at a law firm that committed its heart and soul to, to pro bono work. I did pro bono work, but no one ever came to tell me what was going on in DC Superior Court, seven blocks from my office in Landlord-Tenant Court. That's not where my practice brought me. I didn't know uh, what the numbers were. When I uh, speak to lawyers groups across the country, when I go to big law firms, to talk to them about access to justice. I try to get my hands on any data about the number of unrepresented litigants in the, the courthouse down the block. And I can literally see jaws drop when I, when I tell people what's going on. They don't know. Their day-to-day their -day practices don't bring them into, into poor people's courtrooms. And when they get a sense of what the magnitude of the problem is, what the stakes are, you're talking about the roof over a person's head. You're talking about the stability of their family, their personal safety. Their concerns uh, about uh, potential solutions uh, tend to melt away because if you put the question to them, if you don't like this solution, what is your solution? Because the status quo isn't acceptable. It gets their attention. The biggest challenge we face in our work is ignorance of the magnitude of the problem. You mentioned earlier that your firm uh, had been uh, involved in Gideon v. Wainwright. Are you in favor of a, a civil Gideon? I think within limits, yes. Uh, and I think you're beginning to see evidence of it. You, you can't do a civil Gideon for every kind of uh, civil case. You got to fund it, first of all. Just just snapping your fingers and saying civil Gideon, everybody's got a right to a lawyer in a civil case is not going to make it happen unless there's money to fund the lawyers who are going to provide the service. And you're beginning to see that happen in eviction cases in some cities, local governments stepping up to provide lawyers because they realize not only the unfairness of subjecting people to eviction without the defense of a lawyer, but also the cost to the community. Homeless shelters cost money. Uh, having people lose their home imposes societal costs. So uh, you're seeing it in New York, uh, where New York City, uh, where New York City is moving over time to provide a lawyer to lower income people who are facing eviction. Uh, you're seeing it uh, on a partial basis in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, in Cleveland, in San Francisco. I would focus right-to-counsel approaches on matters of basic human needs, try to identify the categories of cases where large numbers of people have a lot at stake and see what we can do there. But you have to have a funding mechanism, creating the right without, without uh, financial support isn't going to make a difference. Jim, you uh, described that carefully worded mission statement out of the uh, Summit uh, Technology Report. 
to move the U.S. toward providing some form of effective assistance to 100% of persons otherwise unable to afford an attorney for dealing with essential level legal needs. Uh, will we get there in our lifetimes? I think we may, uh, but you have to understand we're talking about a spectrum of, of assistance, not a lawyer for everybody. In, in my lifetime, we're not going to get to a lawyer for everybody. And, you know, I don't know, I don't think that that should be the goal, because as I said earlier, I think some of our processes are just too complicated. I think there's a lot of room for improvement in uh, access to justice and simplifying court processes to make them more amenable for people who don't have formal legal training. That I think is is achievable, but it requires a rethinking of of process, not tinkering with the system that we have, but recreating it in some substantial ways. I'm, I'm reminded of something that uh, Oliver Goodenough, a professor at Vermont Law School, said. He said, uh, "We think of uh, access to justice barriers as if they were a bug in the system rather than a feature of it." Well, we need to recognize that we've built in some barriers in the system that we have and work at tearing them down. Well, uh, you know you know that I, I agree with you on that, uh, and uh, I applaud you for all of your work uh, in this area. Anything else you wanted to talk about before we wrapped up here today? Any final thoughts before we finish the show? Well, I want to thank you for your work and for what you do to focus attention on this issue and on the role that technology can, can play in improving uh, access to justice and also taking a broader view of the problem. Your your particular uh, focus is technology, but your, uh, your concern and your perspective is not limited to that. We need more people like you. I wish I could clone you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think we, we need proselytizers and advocates and evangelists to try to change the system. This, this goes to the uh, the most fundamental values of, of America, equal justice. And we need to uh, come up with solutions that are commensurate with the magnitude of the problem and solutions that are urgent, that recognize that isn't, this isn't something that we can just take our time to do. We need to do it now. Well, if we're going to clone anybody, we'll start with you and uh, I'll be farther <laughs> down, the, down the line somewhere. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank, you. thank you so much for taking the time to be with with uh, with us today. It's always an honor and, and a pleasure to speak with you. And I applaud uh, everything you do. You, the, the passion and commitment you bring to your work uh, is really inspiring to a lot of us. So thanks a lot. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for having me. And thanks again to the sponsor who made today's show possible, My Case, with thousands of customers as a trusted practice management solution, helping lawyers across the country run organized, efficient, and successful law firms. You can try My Case free today at mycase.com. Big shout out to our two top level Patreon supporters, Tim Stanley, CEO of justiad.com, and John Grant, founder of Agile Attorney Consulting at agileattorney.com. And last but not least, thanks to Ben Ambrogi for producing and editing the show. That's it for this week. This is Bob Ambrogi.